you can turn with me to James 1. I did not realize that the text would be also be our Sunday school lesson. We're going to delve a little bit deeper into the first portion of our Sunday school lesson and pick that apart just a little bit more. So James chapter 1 and verse 12, we'll just read these, uh, these verses at this time. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And we will stop there. And the title of this message is simply this, Enduring Temptation. As was pointed out in our Sunday School lesson, uh, temptation is something that we live with on this earth. That's, that's a part of life. And it would be interesting to know if you felt like you dealt with any particular temptation this week. I would assume probably to a greater or lesser degree, uh, whether uh, it was somewhat subconsciously or or not, uh, maybe it was something much more strong than that, probably on a fairly regular basis, a Christian person will face a choice. And it may be a big one or a small one, but it's a choice that needs to be made. And there's an obvious right choice and an obvious wrong. And um, hopefully, as Christians, we are, the, by the far majority of the time, making the right choice. But that's somewhat what we think of when we think of a temptation. It's, it's, this, it's this fork in the road. And I, I, I have a choice to make. And there may be a strong pull this direction, but I know that the right way is that way. And there we are. In the dictionary, I, I looked it up in, in Webster's Dictionary. So what does Webster say a temptation is? And this is how he puts it. Something that causes a strong urge or desire to have or do something, especially something that is bad, wrong, or unwise. And uh, I had to think of our young dog, Bella, at home there. <clears throat> she has this very unwise choice she makes on a re- very regular basis that when we're running the four-wheeler, she has this overpowering desire to bite the, t- the tires. And so this is, you either got to go fast or really slow, because the in-between speed is when it's really bad. You know, fast enough she can keep after and bite the tires and yip, and, and we can chastise her from that, we can scold her for that, and we can do this over and over again. But that temptation, that urge is just so overwhelmingly strong that this is what we deal with. You know, this is... Well, can dogs be tempted? I don't know how that works with dogs. But anyway, I had to think about it. This urge, you know, to do something. Interestingly enough, if you would look at the, uh, if you would look at the word tempted or temptation up in a Bible dictionary, it has this idea to put to the proof by the experience of good or evil. And that goes much more back to what I think Dan brought out that, that Collier mentioned here or whatever it was that, you know, a temptation actually can end up being a good thing. Good things can come of it if the right choices are made and a right path is taken. And I think that temptation is a way that God is honored by his people. 
Because it shows the world, it shows a watching world that there is an ability to rise far above the circumstances that one lives in and live in a way that an average person could not live, could not rise above. You know, Job and his wife. Job is like, he gets to the end of that long day when everything went haywire, big time haywire. And he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And his wife says, curse God and die. We, we have the epitome of opposites there. And so here we are in a, what I would consider a cosmic warfare between good and evil. And we as humans are caught somewhat in the middle of this struggle, and we are free moral agents. And we inevitably find ourselves able to pick, pick sides, you might say. It's the two roads that the Bible calls the broad way and the narrow way. And I, I trust, I uh, have strong confidence that I am speaking to an audience this morning that desires and is on the narrow way, as the Bible calls it. But I can assure you that if you are on that narrow way, you will have ample opportunity to endure temptation. That place where the good and evil converge, God and Satan, carnal appetites that I deal with regularly, and my aspirations to live above them. I'm not sure if I can fully explain how that all plays out, and I'm not sure if any of us can fully explain that. Job sure couldn't. Job had no idea the conversations that God was, God and Satan were having behind the scenes those days, and his friends couldn't either. And so that's why they were pointing at Job, saying, Job, you got issues. There's issues here. They didn't know. They didn't know the real picture. And I don't think we always do either. I'm sure we don't always. And I don't think we should think temptation as an abnormality for our Christian experience. Let's go through this, uh, these verses uh, somewhat with a fine-tooth comb here and see if we can learn some things about temptation. So the first phrase we come upon here is, Blessed is the man that endures temptation. Okay, so the word blessed is a, a word that we're familiar with, shows up in the Beatitudes. It means that we are fortunate, we are well-off, we are supremely blessed. All right? Again, another seeming oxymoron. We are... We're pretty, you're pretty well off, James says, if you endure temptation. You're blessed. The word endure means to persevere or patiently suffer, which gives us the idea that it may not be a fleeting thing. It may not be a one-day thing or a one-hour thing. It could be something that we do battle with um, for a period of time, perhaps even. And I think the enduring of temptation as I mentioned before, is a proof of how much we love God and how much we depend on God. I want you to consider for a minute the opposite of enduring. All right, That maybe helps to explain what endurance is. If I am going to endure, let's say I decide I'm going to um, enroll in Claremont's one-mile race here this summer or whatever. They do funny things like that at their days. And I'm going to do this. And, I, and it's my goal to win the race. Now, if that indeed would happen, and it won't, let me assure you, but if it would, the last thing I should do is to wait till August 2nd, when they have their pig days or whatever it is, and go and line up for the race and start running. I will lose the race, guaranteed. I'm out of shape. I'd be winded within the first several hundred yards. be all over. I wouldn't win the race. 
So I have to do some practicing before that happens. I had to think of uh, Sam Troyer down here. Many of you remember him from Bible school. Um, the man put his mind to uh, running, and uh, he did that well. He would run every morning, I don't know, several miles at uh, Bible school. And um, again, he would have beat me. There was no way I would have kept up with Sam. But that didn't come in one day. It didn't. That, that took a lot of perseverance and endurance. So why am I saying this? If we're going to endure temptation, we have to practice, right? And we're going to get plenty of t- opportunities to practice, I can assure you of that, at least if your experience is anything like mine. So endure, practice. When you, when you face temptation, see it as a challenge, as a opportunity to make the right choice. So let's get practical. How do I do that? How do I practice? How do I pursue this state of physical or spiritual well-being that I can endure the temptation. I have several points here that I want to make. Very, very obvious things, but I think important enough that it's worth mentioning. Are you and I practicing personal daily time with God? Job said, and this is a man that endured temptation, as we pointed out, he, he goes in Job 23, he says, Neither have I gone back from the commandments of his lips, of God's lips. I have esteemed his words, uh, the words of his mouth. In other words, I have esteemed what God has to say more than my necessary food. All right, so he said, if i got to forgo dinner or reading my Bible, I know which one wins. That's what it says. Job understood that he had to spend time with God. Do we understand that as much as Job did? How do you suppose Job would have fared had he not done that? Had he not esteemed God's words more than his necessary food? I think the fact that you are in church this morning tells me that you have a desire to grow spiritually. I think that that is something that we can't I don't think we understand what that does for us. Let's put it that way. There's a reason that the Hebrew writer tells us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves. It's a place where we can grow spiritually. I learned something in Sunday school today. I hope you did too. Uh, it's, it's good for me to hear this. It's good for me to hear other perspectives. It's good for me to associate with you as Christian people. I hope you find it the same way. I'd also like to say that another thing that we can do to help ourselves out in this area of of, uh, overcoming temptation is to have a good dose of humility and a keen understanding of our humanness and our propensity to fall. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, and take the time to read that sometimes, a very interesting chapter, He describes all the failures and problems that the children of Israel had as they wandered through the wilderness. And he he minces no words. He's fairly graphic in his description. And he warns his reader that those people in that wilderness are no different than you and me. And then he concludes that thought, those, those 11 verses of thought. He goes, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. In other words, remember, you're made of the same stuff those Israelites were, and man, they struggle. Don't think it's going to be a whole lot different from you. Your propensity to fall is just as 
Um, it could be just as certain as theirs. If you have a high estimation of yourself and you think, you know what, I wouldn't have acted like that. Be careful. Be careful. And the last phrase here in this, um, in this verse, it says, when he is tried, he will receive the crown of life to them that love him. Do you suppose that loving God has anything to do with how well we were overcome temptation? Couldn't think of Peter, but help but think of Peter in, uh, in the garden there. Shortly before Jesus was arrested, you remember Peter, James, and John, I believe it was, were the disciples that Jesus pulled apart and he said, now I want you to sit here and pray with me. And Jesus went up uh, apart and prayed as well. And I, I believe it was three times that Jesus came back and found these people sleeping. Jesus' admonition to them was, watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. All right? Well, Peter had already made a, a proclamation that it didn't matter what happened to Jesus. He was going to go with Jesus to death. He made that proclamation. How'd that work out for Peter? Peter didn't make it very far. He, you know, he did his little thing with his sword there, cut off that ear of that man that, that, that night. But Peter ended up by the fire denying Jesus rather than up in the, the uh, hall beside Jesus as Jesus was being condemned to die. Later, after Jesus is resurrection, resurrected, he had a, a conversation with Peter. And he asked Peter three times, Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter became a little bit put out and a little exasperated with that question three times back to back. Peter, do you love me? But I think, I think Jesus was attempting, and I think Peter got it later on. Jesus was attempting that, that, uh, in that conversation to impress upon Peter that it was going to be a sincere and keen love that Peter had for, for Jesus that was going to enable him to endure that temptation that he had failed so miserably um, with that night. Peter was very self-confident. He felt very self-confident. and didn't work out very well for him. And again, I'd like to just um, bring this together, that temptation can be an extremely trying set of circumstances, and sometimes it will require some very real hand-to-hand spiritual combat. We need to take the whole armor of God. We need to love God. We need to stand against the wiles of the devil. We need to watch and pray so that we don't enter into temptation. Going on to verse 13. The human race, I take from this verse, and I think this is very common to all of us, the temptation to shift blame whenever we do mess up. Whenever we do sin, whenever we do succumb to, to temptation, and we do something that we know we shouldn't have done, there's that inevitable desire to shift blame for that faltering. Adam and Eve, blame shifted, blame shifted. Eve said, well, you know, it was a serpent. And, or Adam said it was Eve, Eve said it was a serpent. You know, we just kept going back. There was a measure of truth to all of that. But nobody was willing to take responsibility for what happened that day. Um, Cain, while he didn't necessarily shift blame for um, 
for what he he did to Abel that day when he killed Abel, he had an extremely nonchalant attitude. It's like, what do you mean? Where's Abel? I don't know. You know, am I my brother's keeper? You know, just very nonchalant. I had to think of uh, Balaam. Uh, that story of Balaam always impresses me. How that he was in such a rage, such a fit of temper that day when that donkey was it crushed his leg against the wall there, that the donkey spoke to him. And you would think that when a donkey would speak to you, that would really get your attention. But it didn't get his attention. He talked back to the donkey. If I wouldn't have forgotten my sword today, I would kill you, he says, to that donkey. It was the donkey's fault that day. It was had nothing to do with Balaam. Balaam, he was in the will of God as far as he was concerned. It was all about the donkey. There's something about temptation when we're confronted with it and then we succumb to it that is not a great reflection upon ourselves. And so we wish to shift blame. Or we wish to point out the faults of everybody else that are much worse than ours as far as we're concerned. So, yeah, I had this problem, but, you know, it's not as bad as Laverne back there. He has problems far greater than mine or anybody else. Or we make excuses or sanctify the sin. For example, someone crosses my path and it makes me angry. So I know the proper response is, look, resist not evil, take joyfully this grievance, cool it, move on. But perhaps I succumb to my carnality and I lash out and I defend myself and I shout or worse than that. Everybody knows I've just failed. Everybody knows that. But then I excuse myself and say, well, that's just the way I am. You cross my path, this is the way it turns out for me. So just be aware of that. Be aware that's how I am. I think when we do that, we indict ourselves and we bring shame to the Lord. Or if we convince ourselves that we are victims of our circumstances that are far beyond our control, and we kind of have this idea that the devil's out to get us, or people are out to get us, and so we are allowed a certain tolerable range of mess-ups. Or we look for a scapegoat, as I just mentioned, to place the blame upon, rather than owning our very personal problem. You know... Friends, our Christian life is one where we are called to live far above our circumstances. Far above. And we are called to live a Christian life despite our circumstances. And again, hopefully, I can point to Job as a prime example. Somebody did that. Lived above and despite of the circumstances. He lived well. Specifically, I would just like to hone down on this thing in verse 13 where it talks about being tempted of God. Tempted of God. What would make me think that God would tempt me? James points out that, you know, when you're tempted, don't say you're tempted of God, but what would make me think that I, I could be? Well, we could be tempted to think, well, where is God in all of this? Like, where is he? Why am I, why am I dealing with such pressure? So we, 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 could, we could question that. We could question where Satan is in all this process. We could question, well, where I am. You know, so you have kind of these this triangular uh, set of 
people and circumstances that kind of converge. And, and there's times perhaps we wonder. And I think what James is pointing out here is we, as if we view God as all-powerful, and we do, God can do anything, right? We believe that. We, in our minds, we think, well, since I'm a Christian, God could certainly shield me from any set of circumstances that would bring the worst out in me. And so he must have allowed these circumstances. And that could be. That could be he did. In some ways, you could say he allowed the circumstances that Job endured. He did. Um, now, he was very much an active player in that. And he said, you can go this far. And then he said, you can go this far. But no further. So in my mind, I think there's a boundary that God puts up around us. And we'll maybe talk about this a little later, but the Bible is quite clear. The New Testament, 1 Corinthians, uh, there has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is, is faithful and will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able. There's a boundary there. Ellis can perhaps endure more temptation than I can, so he can expect more, right? I think there's something to that. There's not going to be... I think our temptations are well within the confines of what we are able to bear. And I think there's somewhat... Could we even say custom made? I think, I think, I really believe that that is, according to the scripture, something that is, that is part of this whole saga. So, think of, think of these, uh, certain circumstances that come our way as things that God perhaps does allow. But don't hold that against God. Because as it was, again, pointed out in our Sunday school lesson, that can be a way to bring unbelievable glory to God if we rise above that. And we uh, we tap into the power that God has promised to us to live above that. I had to think of several examples in the Bible of, uh, of this thing of where God is in temptation. In Exodus 16, the Lord says to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day. Now here's why God said they should do that. Catch this next phrase. That I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. God specifically said, I'm going to give them, I'm going to give more manna than they need. It's going to rain more than they need, but I only want them to gather this much. So it was a test. Are you able to go out? Do you have the fortitude? Do you have the self-discipline to go out? And there's manna everywhere, and yet you only have four in your family, and so you are allotted this specific amount. Well, some people didn't do it. You know that. They were they were tested, and they failed the test. And then the, the thing, you, every, all your neighbors knew that the next day because it stank and bred worms. And so they're like, oh, that guy there, he, he picked up too much manna. And it said that God was wroth with them. Or Moses, I believe it says Moses was wroth with them. But that's what it said. Uh, that this was a test. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses says this. He said, God fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers knew not, that he may humble you and prove you, and do you good in your latter end. Flipping ahead to Judges, the time of the Judges, there's a verse that goes like this. Now, these are the nations. There's a, a long list of nations that, that stayed there in the land of Canaan. And it said, now, these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan. And, that, and they were to prove Israel by them to know whether they would hearken under the commandment of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. 
again, I don't have to belabor that. You get it. There was a test left there for the children of Israel. Again, going back to uh, to Job, God says, have you considered Job? He said to Satan. And Satan had to ask for permission to afflict Job, and he was granted that. And he gave him a severe thrashing. And it was a test, and Job passed the test. In Matthew 4, when it says that Jesus was uh, tempted of the devil, it said that he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. That turned out to be a time of strengthening for Jesus. And I think we can likewise think of times of temptation as times of potential strengthening. And it could be exactly where God wants us at a particular time to strengthen us, to prove us. So I think there is this common theme that God does orchestrate our life circumstances so that we can bring honor and glory to him. And there is that opportunity, as in the time of the children of Israel, that they made the wrong choice. They did. But God was not there tempting them. They were drawn away of their own lust, their own selfish lust that, look, we can't, yeah, we gotta, we gotta pick up this manna. I want more manna, whatever. They were lured away of their own lust. God did not lure them away or assist in that in any way. In verse 14 then, James clearly says where we should point whenever we yield to temptation. And that's me. And as I mentioned before, that's hard to do. That doesn't flatter us much. But our responsibility is very much on us. We're drawn away by our own lusts. And we're enticed. We're deluded. We convince ourselves that we can yield to this temptation, but we will be able to beat the odds. Sin won't have the effect on us that it has on others. I think we're either in a state of deception or delusion or perhaps both whenever we think in those ways. But at times I think we do. Verse 15 then has the very clear outline of the progression of temptation. It says, Lust conceives. So when we act upon the lust of our flesh, there's a conception there. It conceives in some way. Perhaps some more passively, perhaps some more aggressively. But when it conceives, it is acted upon, that lust is acted upon, then it becomes sin. So it's not the temptation, it's the act on that temptation. And sin is a state where I would suggest that a person can exist for some period of time, okay? For some period of time. Now, he can be deluded into thinking that that perhaps um, he'll get away with it, but at some point, there will be death. I had to think of two verses. In uh, Proverbs 6, 27, the proverb writer asked this question. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burnt? Now, he doesn't even answer the question. He just asks it. Is that possible? Is it possible for me to take a blowtorch and point it at my clothes and expect that all will be well? It's just ludicrous. Of course, we know that's not going to... And so the obvious deduction is, don't think you can dabble around with sin and expect that all will be well. But then in Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon has this to say. He goes, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. All right, so understand that. Because perhaps you can do a thing and get away with it, 
people are deluded into thinking, you know what? I don't believe this death thing really does happen. I don't believe sin does ultimately bring death. And herein lies the deceitfulness of sin. A person can exist in this state for a time. But James says that when it's finished, in other words, there is a finish line, and that finish line will bring death. And it doesn't matter the time of the length of time that elapses between the conception and the finish line, it's always death. And there's always a progression of death along the way. Think about it. If I go against my conscience and I do a thing that I know that I shouldn't, I have just brought somewhat of a death to my conscience. All right? There's probably going to be a death to my spiritual vitality. That's going to ebb away. We're not going to have the, the desire for that that we once did. There's probably going to be death to good relationships with spiritual people because I'm going to be somewhat envious and uncharitable in my feelings towards people that are actually living well. I think there's going to be death to victory in ensuing battles that we have. Because I lost this one and I'm not willing to deal with it properly, the next one I'm probably not going to win either. I shouldn't say probably. We won't. And ultimately, there will be spiritual death, both now and in eternity. So there, death will come. There's just a period of time in there, in that conception period. So I'd like to wrap it up with a few points. How can I, as a Christian, live in a way that temptations are an experience that strengthens me and doesn't cause me to succumb to it? So these are some practical things we can think about here. Number one, let's all resolve to keep a distance from sources of temptation. All right, seems rather obvious, but perhaps it needs to be said. I do wonder if Eve would have eaten that fruit that day had she been with Adam, perhaps. Away from that tree, whatever. Just get away from it. You know, don't sit around looking at it, you know. We always picture the, uh, the snake in that tree. Now, I don't know that the Bible necessarily says the snake was in the tree, but at least Eve was close enough to that tree that when the devil said, look at that tree, she did it. She was close enough that she could look at it. I think we should be spiritually astute enough that we can make personalized, custom-made spiritual disciplines for ourselves to keep ourselves a distance from what we know will be a source of temptation for us. I think that's a good way to succeed spiritually. And there may be even things that others may engage in, but if I engage in it, I know will bring me to a point where I could fall. Let's be, let's be strong enough spiritually to, to make good decisions in that, in, in those ways for ourselves. Number two, let's be careful not to put ourselves in a position where we will be compromised spiritually or physically. Now let me explain this a little bit. On the example of the spiritual compromise, Paul tells Timothy this in 1 Timothy 6. He goes, he'll be rich, will fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish which drown men in destruction and perdition. Now if you follow that train of thought, he said, there's something with the desire of being rich and pursuing that that is going to open up a myriad of opportunities for you to fall into temptation. So for your spiritual good, 
You should think about that, and you shouldn't pursue that. And I'm going to suggest this morning that there's other things we could put in there. They that desire to, you fill in the blank, will open themselves up to a a much bigger possibility of stumbling and falling in the Christian life. So there's that part of it. It rides closely on the heels with the first point I made. Now, what about the physical part of this? I uh, I recently was reading a book where um, the writer brought this out, and I think there's a fair bit of truth to it. And I'm going to just suggest this to you this morning for your uh, your consideration. But can I be spiritually compromised because I am physically compromised? Is that possible? Now, you think about that for a little bit. If I work too hard, I work too much, I don't sleep enough, I make poor lifestyle choices, I'm sucking down Mountain Dew all the time and eating chocolate chip cookies and all this stuff, do you think by my choice and lack of personal discipline, could that wear me down spiritually? Is there a possibility that that could? The writer suggests that it could, and I tend to agree with him. Um, as a matter of fact, you think about a time, and even it happens today, but, you know, if, if, if in the old days, in the times of the Anabaptists, when a physical persecution was to wear the person down spiritually, to make him give up his faith, they knew there was a connection there, all right? Now, obviously, we can rise above that. There didn't have to be that connection, but they understood that there was, there could be, all right? So in, in, that, in that particular instance, you don't have a choice. You're being physically compromised, not by choice. What I'm asking us this morning, are we physically compromising ourselves by choice? That's not wise, all right? So I think that there is a significant relationship between good personal disciplines that put us in a good place for good spiritual progress. I'll give you one of my personal disciplines that uh, is good for me. I'm not sure if it's good for you, but it's good for me. I am not a fan of Saturday night activities, okay? I'm not. And here's why I'm not a fan of that, is because when I'm out late on Saturday night, which I, I... I was a little bit last night, but that's because Dan's were around. So, you know, there's anomalies here and there. I struggle with sleep on Sunday morning. And I don't want to sleep on Sunday morning. I don't want the preacher to have to sit here and watch me take a nap. All right? And I really feel bad whenever I'm yawning and my wife's nudging me and I want to take a nap and that's not what I want. See? When I'm napping in church, I'm not doing much for my spiritual well-being, Right? So there's a little bit of a connection there. i got to get to bed on time Saturday night so I'm not napping in church on Sunday morning. I think you get the point. There's other things we could other things we could talk about, but we'll leave that. You make your own applications. Number three, on this whole thing of uh, ways we can overcome temptation, be alert to deceptive voices. 1 John 4. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. I don't think I need to, to uh, enlarge on that a lot, but do I need to remind you that if there was many false prophets in John's day, I believe there's just as many today and perhaps more, okay? False prophets. And if we are 
giving them an ear. Don't be surprised if it will compromise you spiritually. Number four, be prompt at heeding the voice of warning that comes through our conscience. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 3, 7, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. We go back to that whole thing of the children of Israel in the wilderness being an example of what not to do. And he said part of the problem was there, apparently, is that they didn't listen to the voice immediately. Now, I think there's times that we're going to be confronted with a temptation. I mean, generally, or at least quite frequently for me, the temptation is real and it's right now, and I have to make a choice. And perhaps we will encounter times whenever the, the obvious isn't as clear as we wish it was. When that happens, always take the high road, okay? Always. There's always going to be a way that's better than another. Even if that way may be okay, if we're all unsure, take the other way. Because I do think there's something about if we, if we heed the voice of warning and there's, and we have a little niggling feeling that this way could maybe be a compromised way, but we're a little unsure, but we have to make a snap decision. Take the high road. Take the high road. Don't blunt your conscience. Number five, stay close to those who care for you and want your best. I would like to encourage us. If we find ourselves struggling and habitually falling into habits that we know are wrong, we know are not spiritually conducive, the last thing we should do is withdraw ourselves from people that we know want our best and want to help us. I strongly feel that if we would perhaps um, take James's advice here in chapter 5 to confess our faults one to another and pray for one another, perhaps we would enjoy more healing. Perhaps our struggle sometimes is a barometer of how much we are engaging or withdrawing from people that want our best. And lastly, I must be honest and come clean when I fall. Absolutely no excuses. In the book of Galatians, Paul says to the church there, he goes, if anyone is overtaken in a fault, those who are spiritual should restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering himself, lest he also be tempted. Now that verse, there's a lot we could talk about in that verse, but the overriding theme that I want to pick out of that is that occasionally, and hopefully it's more occasionally than regularly, there is going to be a fall. And that fall will sometimes be us. All right? So let's own that that we are overtaken in a fault. And then let's consider what I was overtaken in. And then let us consider who that involved. And to the point that that involved people or peoples, persons or peoples, let's make that right. Let's, let's, let's take that to the, to the complete end of things. I do wonder sometimes if the story of Achan could have been different 
had Achan voluntarily confessed his sin. If he came home that night with that, with that uh, chunk of gold and that Babylonish garment and so on, and he would have buried it, but he couldn't have slept that night, and he would have got up and he went to Joshua and said, Joshua, I did this. You know, it's totally hypothetical, but I have a feeling it could have turned out differently. I just have a feeling it could have. So that's what I would like to, to encourage us. First John 1 9, a verse we could all say by memory. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And thank God for that. And I want to encourage us own it. If we fall into temptation, own it. Make it right. Confess it to God. Confess it to the person you have sinned against or the people you have sinned against. Don't hide it. Don't make excuses. I think this is an extremely healthy spiritual exercise. Closing verse I would like to leave with us this morning is a very, very uh, comforting verse. In Hebrews 4.15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now, does that verse do anything for you? I sure hope it does. Jesus was tempted. I Curtis made a point on Wednesday evening that, you know, we think sometimes, like, do we, does the, does the crucifixion and all that Jesus went through, um, grip us like it does when we hear of some modern Christian being beheaded. You know, we just cringe from that. And yet we don't find ourselves cringing so much at what Jesus endured. And I almost think it's the same way whenever we think of Jesus. We think of him as God, and we should. He was. And I think the the humanity of Jesus, I don't know that I sometimes grasp that. I don't think I understand that the things I face as a man, Jesus did too. He did, just as in the humanist way that I did. And yet, I think in the back of my mind, well, he was God. He, he had some sort of a power that I don't. Did he? I don't know. It says he was, point, he, was, he, was, he was tempted in all points, and yet he did it without sin. And I think we would all agree that Jesus could have sinned. He could have. And he didn't. Now, does it, I'm not promoting sinless perfection here or anything, and I think I'm going into the weeds where I'm not even sure that I can completely explain how this all works. But I want you to take courage in the fact that that's our high priest. He knows, he understands. And that should, that should um, make us eager to approach our high priest with our, with our infirmities because he was likewise tempted. Well, hopefully you've been inspired, you've been challenged, you've been... Um, encouraged that enduring temptation is not something any of us are alone in and it's not something that any of us have to be overcome by and praise God for that.